Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my jewel and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Yodius, beseech Seneca, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, uh, I say uh, rejoice. But to look back at verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It's amazing watching people in different circumstances or even some that are in the same circumstances. When you have the same Holy Spirit indwelling you, going to the same Baptist church with the same pastor, the same Christian friends, enjoying the same benefits, the same ministries, the same leadership, the same city, the same weather, and one is barely surviving while the other is thriving. One is dejected, despondent, living in despair while the other one seems to be constantly happy and excited about the future. One is constantly referring to everything they're hearing on the news while the other one is constantly referring to the blessings of God in their life. One lives from moment to moment and day to day uh, frustrated and angry and stressed and uh, hoping a doctor will help them out with their depression, uh, their sleeplessness and their constant migraines while the other one can seemingly eat ice cream, uh, carrots, celery, and chicken wings and sleep as peacefully as a baby does, waking up every three hours and screaming out because of the acid reflux. <laughs> now my question is, what is the difference? We understand in life it's not circumstances that determine our joy. I don't have to tell you this. Everyone in here knows when Paul wrote this book, he was writing from a prison in Rome. It's not good circumstances. His bed was a hard earthen floor. His bathroom was a deserted corner of his cell. Barely had enough food to survive on. Yet in the midst of those circumstances, we find him repeatedly speaking of joyful living. Verse 1, it says, I thank my God. Verse 4 says, with joy. Chapter 1, verse 18 says, I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Verse 25 speaks of the joy of faith. Verse 26 speaks and says that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 2 says, fulfill ye my joy. 2.16 says that I may rejoice in the day of Christ. 17 says, I joy and rejoice with you all. 18 says, for the same cause also do you joy and rejoice with me. Are you getting the picture? Paul was not sitting there feeling sorry for himself because of his circumstances saying, if things would change, if God would answer my prayer, if he'd deliver me from this situation, I certainly may not be able to be joyful, but I'd certainly be happier God would do something to remedy my circumstance. But your joy doesn't depend upon your circumstance. I've seen people unhappy at parties. It was you. I mean, in a service like tonight, 
with good singing and wonderful special music and surrounded by the brethren, some of you still couldn't convince your faith to smile. I mean, you're in God's house with indwelling of the Holy Spirit, about ready to hear from the Word of God, and you still can't convince yourself you've got enough to be happy. Now, if you're born again, you have plenty to be joyful about. If you're just saying, that's it. Just knowing I'm going to die one day and wake up immediately walking on streets of gold, that's enough to be happy about. I would hate to think in my life that my joy or lack of joy was controlled by the weather in this city. Boy, you're not going to have very many days that are happy days. The humidity has to be below 20%. The temperature in between 60 and 75. The wind chill factor about 5 degrees. And partly cloudy, mostly sunny. Folks, you've got about seven days a year when you can actually be happy. Well, when my mate starts treating me differently, when people start showing a little bit of respect, my kids get obedient. When God blesses me, you're going to be waiting a long time because God can't bless that kind of attitude of ingratitude. Here's what Paul said. I'm going to be happy. Now, here's what's amazing. If joy were dependent upon circumstances, this would be the happiest generation in the history of the world. It's not like you had to wake up this morning, go out to a well to draw your water. You didn't send your kids out to uh, milk the cows and feed the chickens before you climbed on your horse and rode to church. I mean, think about it for a minute. The alarm went off for the 16th time. You know why it went off for the 16th time? Because you actually have a mattress that hugs you. You say, I don't understand how those old farmers used to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning. If you slept on their bed, you'd get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. I mean, it's as hard as ceramic tile, and they get up because their back hurt at 25. They wanted to milk the cow after laying on that bed. But you... You have a mattress that no one for the first 6,000 years in the history of mankind has. You woke up, sat up, said, boy, it's a lousy day. That bed is literally hugging you. You've got to force your way up. Rub your feet along. Don't you like carpet? You know what percentage of this world enjoys carpet? You know how many feet will never touch carpet? Ever in their lifetime. Then you started this pattern all over again, which you started many, many moons ago, called overeating. (laughs) Did you know there's a large percentage of the world goes hungry? They're hoping today they gather enough cornmeal or flour. I was teasing Shane yesterday about food in foreign countries. And I said, I want to go to Uganda. I just don't want to eat mush mush. He said, he started laughing, mush mush. We don't eat mush mush. I said, yes, you do. I talked to your dad before. 
I said, what is that, that stuff, you know, the cornmeal? The oh, he said, that's wonderful. It's flour and water, and you use it to dip in beans. I said, flour and water is not wonderful. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Wonder Bread? <laughs> that's wonderful, amen. <laughs> and don't come to me with the seven grain and barley lie. That is a lie of the devil. We are blessed. Then you start that process of overeating and you eat something before you even leave the house and you go to prayer and then you eat something in between church and prayer. And then you've made it officially two hours and about the last 10 minutes of the message, you're starting to get shaky because you need something else to eat. So you're going to go sit in a restaurant, order a plate with about 1,800 calories, which the world doesn't eat in five days. They need it at one meal. And then just to make sure it all turns out perfectly, you're going to top it off with a coffee. And we still can't be thankful. If you just take a look at your house, folks, this past summer we went to Colorado. We wandered around in those cave dwellings. And I, I took a look just climbing up and down those rocks and looking in. You know, those places are only about six foot by six foot with the eight-foot ceiling, and you're, you're thinking, this is the way they lived, and they would gather, they talked about up in one of the corner crevices, they found all these corn cobs, filled corn. So that was the mainstay of their diet. When's the last time you had filled corn? That's what I thought. Maybe never. We don't even have to prepare our food. We don't have to light a fire. I mean, we can be so lazy, we can drive up to a window and say, hey, you didn't get it to me in five minutes. What's your problem, man? I thought this was fast food. I mean, you just got a hamburger. Did you know in ancient days they actually had to kill a cow to get that? And mix cornmeal and then their double whopper did not taste like what you just ate. They couldn't just go to the store and buy a little piece of plastic that had cut carrots and cut celeries and little tomatoes. They actually had to plant seeds and water the garden and chase away the bugs. And then when they got the tomato, it didn't look red or round. It had little things crawling around inside of it. If they were lucky enough to get it before someone else got it. Or a deer or a bear or a bug or a neighbor that was hungrier than them. <laughs> It's amazing how much we have and we're still grateful. The church has existed for 2,000 years. But how long have buildings this nice and pews this soft and pulpits this well designed and screens, screens in the auditorium? How many past generations have enjoyed grand pianos, lighting, how many generations could come to a church, sit down every service and have it about a perfect 72 degrees and you still hear complaints, it's so cold. And the other half says, it's so hot. We're just the generation that can't seem to be joyful. We have not just enough, but more than enough but we've allowed everything that's circumstantial in life to determine 
our level of joy and we looked at everything and said, if you're my mate, you're supposed to provide me joy. If you're my friend, you're supposed to provide me joy. If you're my boss, you're supposed to provide me joy. They're not your source of joy. God is supposed to be your source of joy. If your friend is your source of joy, sooner or later, you're going to be very enjoyable. If your car is your source of joy, the first time it breaks down, you've got a broken down joy. I've seen women, their source of joy is their house and their possessions, everything they have in their house. And the first time they babysit someone else's kids and those kids walk in and they grab a lollipop and they don't know about it and they get jumping on the couch and they forget the lollipop fell out of their mouth and here comes the babysitter and sees this sticky red thing stuck to white material. Did you know after centuries of developing cleaning supplies, there's still nothing that will take red stain out of a white surface when it's in your house. <laughs> oh, there's myths. There's legends. There's people that lie and say, no, there's actually something that will take that color out of that couch. It's a lie. Don't even try it. Just buy a pillow and leave it on top of that stain and quit making your couch, the source of your joy. I can't believe the yo-yo life that we live up and down, hot and cold, happy one day, unhappy the next. As long as I'm healthy, as long as I have money in my pocket, as long as people are treating me good, as long as my marriage is good, and all these circumstances dictate whether or not you can smile. I would hate to think that I was so small, so immature, so petty, so little in my Christian growth that I couldn't overcome an occasional circumstance and say, hey, despite what's happening, I have a good life. My goodness, I woke up this morning with a wonderful family coming to a wonderful church. I've got a Joseph A. Banks suit on. I've got a very expensive pen that someone gave me for my birthday. Got to be careful that one will leak in your pocket and ruin your Joseph A. Banks suit, amen. I'm living the good life. You know people had a tie like this in their lifetime, a suit like this in their lifetime? I'm telling you what, we are blessed. Easy to sit when someone sings a song like that and shout amen. But Monday when you go out with the world and suddenly somebody, and Satan will always send someone to poke your little joy bubble and pop it when it's circumstantial. Because some of you think your joy depends on a cup of coffee, a bar of chocolate, or a good morning kiss. What if you don't get that? What if you wake up to someone with hair uncombed, bad breath, that says, would you please go to work? Because I don't have breakfast for you today. And suddenly you find yourself unhappy. Here's Paul sitting in a prison and all he can talk about is the joy that he finds in life because he's a born-again child of God doing what is right to do. I'll tell you what, our Christianity is so pathetic that the smallest thing, all it takes is a dead battery, a flat tire, 
When I sat ashamed of myself several weeks ago, when we turned down a road the first time as far as I can remember, 42 years of life, as far as I can remember, the first time in a car I was driving, had a flat tire and I had to get out and change it. My kids were just waiting to see what daddy would do. And Elizabeth pulled out her phone camera. She said, I'm going to video this. I thought they ought to know that their dad is not going to allow a flat tire to affect his joy. How pathetic would that be? Well, it's going to be 102 degrees. Yes, you live in Texas. You know it's going to be 102. Why don't you prepare yourself before you ever get to summer so you can say when it's 102, I can still smile. If my cheek muscles are so weak that they can't smile when it's 102, I've got pathetic cheeks. <laughs> Amen. Walking around, letting everything in the world determine this. Paul says, I can be happy. And he gives us a command that says, rejoice always. That's all inclusive. He's not overwhelmed by the darkness, not overcome by the depression, not overly stressed by the surroundings. Now, I want to give you a few keys tonight that Paul gave us in this book. How to be joyful. Number one, think thankfully. Pretty basic, isn't it? It'll revolutionize your life. Look what he says, verse 6. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, circle these next two words, with thanksgiving. How would it change your life if everything you did was done with thanksgiving? I'm going to mow my yard with thanksgiving. I'm going to cook this meal with thanksgiving. I'm going to drive today to work with thanksgiving. I'm going to deal with that person with thanksgiving. I'm going to go to my ministry with thanksgiving. It's amazing all the good things in life that we seemingly can't do with Thanksgiving. And there's some people, they go out to golf to relax, and they can't even do that with Thanksgiving. Dad, burning, I can't believe this golf, this thing, I cannot believe. Good night, why'd you come out here? You're stressing me out, and I came out to relax. They can't even go on vacation with Thanksgiving. Can't even do the pleasures of life, sit at home. They're going to sit down and relax. And they're upset because someone left the popcorn in the microwave too long. Okay, you, didn't buy, you didn't buy any more. What? You didn't buy any more soda? I told you. It's almost like we live to be angry. You know, I just want to be miserable. And I'm hoping someone right away will give me the excuse. Here's Paul. Take a look at Paul's life for a minute. Now, remember this. Remember his circumstances. When he told this church, he's talking to the church of Philippi, they remember what happened. You remember in Acts chapter 16. He goes into town. He preaches. Now, normally he would go to the temple in this case because there wasn't one. He went to the river where he found some people gathering. He preached. Ladies were saved. Lydia was the most prominent of the bunch. She was happy to host them and help them. But that doesn't mean everything was going well because he's out street preaching one day. Remember the little demon-possessed girl that was making her boss a lot of money through her soothsaying? And Paul casts out the demon, and when he sees the hope of his gains are all gone, he gets angry, and they bring those two men before the magistrate, and he commands them to be beaten and thrown into jail. They're put into stocks. And do you remember what they did? 
Now hold on for a second, because when we read Scripture, normally there's very little thought process that goes into it. They had been beaten, their backs are raw, their muscles are bruised, their arms are outstretched, those stocks were not massage therapy. There they are. Paul, what are you going to do now? I'm going to do everything with thanksgiving. What if we made that determination in life? And we have a lot to be thankful for. We just don't express it. You know what it is? It's a failure to meditate. You know why you can't be thankful for this church? When you sit down and say, I'm sitting in a pew, I didn't buy it. I didn't even have to build. I didn't even bring it in here. I didn't even have to set it up. I didn't even straighten it up. I'm enjoying a clean auditorium that I didn't even vacuum. A screen that I didn't have to put together. A message that I didn't prepare. A song that someone else wrote and arranged and that group gathered and practiced and all I had to do was get in my car, bring my family, sit in a church and enjoy what everyone else is providing for me. Thank you. But even with a beautiful ride and a beautiful car, with a beautiful family to a beautiful church and a beautiful building, beautiful pew with a beautiful pastor, you know what? We still can't find gratitude in our heart to actually express thankfulness. If we don't make that a daily habit, you know, we speak of children that aren't thankful enough, but that starts with the spiritual leadership in the home, and the spiritual leadership has to ingrain that and train that in their children. Will children learn to express gratitude? Thank God for my family. Thank God for the leadership of this church. Thank God for the help and the good staff that we have. Thank God for the music. Thank God for the pianists. Listen, as we travel and visit churches, I have been to places where when that pianist began, it was like fingernails on a chalkboard, and I thought, Lord, I begin to pray. Their music helped my prayer life. And I said, oh, God, help them to get through this song. Help her some point to hit a right chord. One note, Lord, just one note would be fine. One good note. Thank God for a song leader that knows how to match his clothes, for the most part. <laughs> Occasionally he struggles with his ties, but I, I can overlook that. At least he doesn't wear bell bottoms and corduroy pants, amen. Yeah, we've seen that before. Look what he says in verse 11. Not that I speak in respect to one, I have learned. Now, let me just say this. This isn't something that you are born with. It's something you have to learn. You didn't come out of the womb with a thankful heart, a grateful spirit, and full of contentment. You have to learn to be content. I have learned in whatsoever state I am. Remember, he is speaking this from prison. I have learned to be content. I know how both to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere in all things. I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. This is a society that's promoted discontentment. And it doesn't matter what you have. This culture has taught you you don't have enough. 
if you have 12 dresses, you need at least 15. There's a color that's still lacking, shoes that are still missing, a necklace for that combination. Your car's too old. Your house is in the wrong neighborhood. Your life insurance is not enough money. You've got to add. And so you live in a constant state of comparison, looking around and saying, look at that, I think I do need another time. My shoes are getting old. My car does need to be updated. And Paul said, whatever state God has me in, and for some of you that state is Texas, and you need to be content in Texas. For some of you that state is a ministry, and you need to get content with your ministry. Changing ministries is not going to change your state of mind. Well, if I could just change my mate, you don't need a change of state. You need a change of mind, a change of heart, a contentment that says God has given me exactly what I need. I can be content. Look what he says from prison, Philippians 1 verse 12. Philippians 1 12. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which have happened unto me have fallen out, brethren, to the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. He said, listen, God's using my imprisonment to spread the gospel. He said, there are people here that would have never heard had I not been placed in prison. And remember this, Paul had always wanted to go to Rome. And God said, here's what I'm going to do, Paul. I'm going to get you there on a boat free of charge. You won't even have to pay. You won't have to walk like you've done so often before. I'm going to have personal security guards with you. You're going to have quite the trip. And I'm going to bring you before the greatest leaders in Rome and will give you a platform to witness Paul. And he said, listen, through all of this, Satan meant it for evil. God meant it for good. My bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace. How was Paul going to get an invitation to preach in the palace had he not been arrested and gone as a prisoner? And he said, not only that, many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He said, because of my example, because the door God's opened, because of my witness and my boldness, it's been contagious. And now I'm seeing the brethren gain a little bit of confidence and gather a little bit of boldness. And those that normally wouldn't have preached, they are preaching now because of my testimony. God has used these circumstances for good. Now you can't be happy until you understand God is sovereign in control of everything, knows exactly what he's doing, has a divine purpose. He said, of course, some indeed preach Christ of envy and strife, and some also goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. He said, listen, I know people's motives aren't always right. I know there's some that are preaching other things besides Christ, but when they preach Christ, it doesn't matter if they're of envy and strife, I can still be happy, he said, verse 17, the other of love, knowing that I'm set for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. He said, I can be happy knowing that God is in control and I'm not going to judge their motives. I'm going to allow God to rectify the circumstances, be honored in everything that's done, and accept the fact that God is sovereign. 
And if you don't understand God's sovereign, you're not going to be happy. You're going to sit around and say, I can't believe this is happening. God says, I know what I'm doing. That's what Paul referred to as the joy of faith. Look at the last phrase in verse 25. He says, the, what are the three words he uses? The joy of faith. You know why some people can't be happy? There's no joy found outside of faith. The life you're living, the circumstances you are suffering, the injustices you're dealing with, the health problems, the financial setbacks, the family issues, what's going on in our society. How many of you read the, or heard the news over the past couple of weeks? Now, if you, it just dawned on you that the government's actually spying on all your communication, if it just dawned on you, you're not really that bright anyways. <laughs> Have you ever read your Bible? Have you ever read Bible prophecy? you ever heard about one world government, one world religion? Have you ever read about the mark of the beast and the antichrist? Have you ever thought you're living in the last days in order for all that to happen? There has to be big brother spying on everybody because at some point the antichrist is going to determine and so track and follow everyone on the planet, you'll be able to determine if you don't have a mark, you can't buy or sell. So all this has got to happen. But I know there's a God in heaven with a purpose in mind. And I'm not going to read that. Go overdose on coffee. <laughs> Here's what Paul said in Philippians 2.14. Do all things without murmurings and disputing. You know what you're going to have to do? Start to think thankfully because when you think thankfully, you get your mind off the negative to the positive and your heart changes Christians, I don't care if it's 2013. You say, well, if I lived in 1975, if I would have been born two centuries ago, I'm out of my time. I wish I would have been born in a different generation. You, you know, if I would have been around with Billy Sunday, I would have been a much happier person. Yeah, I can see Donald milking cows. and I can see Donald going to the well to draw water, cooking with wood. I can see Donald... Riding a horse with Jonathan in the wagon and saying, Felicia, here comes Felicia dragging her 30-foot dress. Let's go. It's time to go to church. Janet, my love, with a 30-pound iron that she just pulled off coals spent 20 minutes ironing that dress. Don't tell me you would be happier in a previous generation. You know what Donald likes? Dry cleaning? Bottled water? Packaged food? Listen, folks, we're lying to ourselves. Thinking that because we were born in a different generation, you would have been unhappy in that generation because you were just born unhappy. And then you developed it? You nurtured it? You promoted it, and in the end, you're professionally unhappy. You've mastered the art. I mean, we know it. You've got it written all over your face. Congratulations. You got it in your walk. You ever seen an unhappy person walk? You say, boy, no one shakes my hand at church. They know you're unhappy. They're fearful. I go, I can't shake his hand. Good night. I know what's coming. You need to, at some point, Understand, life is not problem-free. And I pity you because 
I, I can't even imagine you get to get to heaven. You say, I, I, I thought gold would shine more than that. Number two, walk humbly. Look what it says, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Let me repeat that. Let each esteem other better than themselves. You know how to be miserable. Make all of life about you. I mean, make church, coming to church about you. Well, I hope they sing the songs I like, the style I like. I hope I get the chair I like, the place I like. I hope people treat me nice who shake my hand. I hope the preacher preaches something that I like. You're going to be miserable because you're making everything from the time you wake up to the time you lay your head upon your pillow about you. Why don't you get your eyes off yourself and put them on someone else and see what you can do to be a blessing? Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. What is that mind? He walked humbly. Look what it says. Who being in the form of God, thought it not Robert to be equal to God. He made himself no reputation, took upon him the form of a ser servant, and was made in the likeness of man, being found in the fashion of man. He humbled himself. You know how to be joyful? Ditch your pride. Learn to walk humbly. Now, because I took so much time on that first point, we've got to race through our next three. We just say this about walking humbly. Several weeks ago, we took the college group out on activity. We went to a baseball game. And God brought a thought to my mind because we sat there, the score was tight. Now, I do have a bad memory, and Pastor Robert can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but as far as I remember, it was the fourth or fifth inning, the score was tight. There was a man on second, and the next hitter came up to the plate, and they're showing the stats up on the board. This is their best power hitter on the team, and the third baseman gives him the signal, the bunt. One out, one man on second, power hitter at the plate. The third baseman says, I want you to lay down and sacrifice bunt. Tell me that makes sense. And his first bunt attempt was unsuccessful, and I thought they're going to change the call and allow him to hit. Now that the pitcher thinks he's going to bunt, he'll just go ahead and let him swing. But no, he went back two times unsuccessful bunt, and I thought surely now the whole team's aware of what he's trying to do. But no, they pitched it to him again. He bunted, sacrificial bunt, moved the man to third. Do you remember the play, Pastor Robert? And he went out. Next man got up, knocked the man in, uh, ended up being the winning run. But you know what went down in the box score? He didn't get the hit. He didn't make the run. He got the out. You know what we don't like in life? When God says, I don't need you to hit a home run. I don't need you to score. There isn't even anyone that's going to notice what you did. All they're going to hear is you were called out. I want you to lay down a sacrificial bunt for the team. Boy, people don't like that. I want you to go to the nursery and lay down a sacrificial bunt. I want you to get in that ministry. I don't care no one else sees. I want you to give the team a sacrifice bunt, and that way 
day, it'll advance a runner, and the next person will be the star. I don't need you to be the star. You just tap that ball, get your out, advance the runner, and let me call the game. We spend our life arguing with the third base coach. I'm the power hitter. This team needs me. I'm going for the fence. And God says, sacrifice, bunt. That's all I need you to do. Don't get a star. There ain't no one going to jump up and scream. And guess what? The power hitter walks off having made an out. And the next guy gets up, knocks that runner in. And the whole crowd. Screamed and cheered while the power hitter was sitting in the dugout having just advanced that runner and made all of that possible. You know where you can be joyful? I don't think he was pouting. I think he was happy saying, you know what, that was the right call, the right play, and we end up winning the game because I was willing to make sacrifice. But there's just not very many Christians willing to do that. Everyone wants to grab a bat. Pastor, let me swing for the fences. I don't need that because you'll probably strike out. Number three, speak positively. You want to know how to be joyful? Pastor, I don't, I don't know how to be happy. Stop the negativity already. Don't look at me like I'm promoting the power of positive thinking. But it would do you good. To occasionally say something healthy and positive and stop being critical and negative. I mean, some people, their whole goal in life, I want to see how long I can be negative and how many people I can get to jump on my ship of negativity. Come on, I'm taking you for a ride. It is so hot in this city. The allergy, the mold count is so high. My eyes are so itchy. My back hurts so bad, the preacher's so long. Do you understand how bad the traffic has gotten in this city? You know what that's called? Negativity. Why don't you have something come out of your mouth that's positive? Why don't you wake up when it's 105 degrees outside and say, thank God for another day of life. Thank God it's not 107. Amen. Amen? Look what Paul said. Now, here's what I love about Paul. He's being positive. He's being positive about people. In Paul's case, having suffered what he suffered, having dealt with what he dealt with, and the, the betrayal and the criticism and the hardships, he still says in chapter 4, verse 1, when he's referring to these people, he refers to them as my joy and my crown. He's being positive. Go back to chapter 1, verse 6. Look what he says. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's not always easy for a pastor to say, but Paul says, I'm very confident. God's going to do this great work in you. He's going to perform it, even if it is meet for me to think 
this of you all because I have used my heart in as much as both in my bonds in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Y'all are partakers of my grace. God is my record. How greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. You know what he's doing? He was keeping everything he was saying. In this circumstance, you hear no negativity. You don't care him fussing and complaining, depressed and dejected. It's all positive. And even though I guarantee you negative thoughts crossed his mind, he said they won't come out of my lips because that influences my heart. So get positive. Some of you are positively negative. And let me just say this. It's hard to be positive. When you're listening to gossip. Women, get out of the gossip chain. Steer clear of gossip. Listen, let's be positive. There's plenty of good things to talk about in this church, in this world, in my life. Say something positive. You know what changed your life? Say something positive. I can't think of anything positive. Make something up. <laughs> Number four, forget continually. Have a short memory. I thank God he's blessed me with a short memory. Occasionally, I can remember what happened to me this morning, but anything past that, <laughs> it's kind of a blur. Go to my wife. It's hilarious, the conversations we have, and she asks me, knowing my memory is bad, and she says, do you remember when? How many of you have wives that try to put you in that kind of a pickle of a situation? I know she's picking for a fight when she asks me about our wedding. Do you remember when we got married? Babe, there's sometimes I don't remember that I am married. Do you remember? No, I don't. I thank God you're here. I know it's a fact. I've seen the certificate. But I know she's picking a fight when she says, what were our wedding colors? White. Absolutely. You were wearing white. Jewelry and white. And your hair was beautifully done. You had a veil too. Some of you need to have a short memory. Because all you talk about is yesterday and last year and 42 years ago and what happened to you when you were a kid and what you suffered as a teenager and what you've had to deal with since you were married. Why don't you live today? You can't be happy living in the past. Look what Paul said. Philippians 3, 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. Stop dwelling on the past. Stop dwelling on all the injustices. Stop dwelling on the hurt. Learn to forgive. I love Matthew 18. It's become one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. I love the story of the debtor. I love what Christ was trying to teach Peter. I love the fact that forgiveness is simply the cancellation of a debt. It's not that you don't remember anymore. It's that you've already canceled the debt. So when your mind goes back, you say, you know what? That is... Done, it's over, the debt's been paid, it's been canceled. You know what I like? They had nothing of their own selves to pay. He didn't postpone the debt, he canceled the debt. 
And you say there was a big difference in their debt. No, there wasn't a big difference because neither of them could possibly, within their means, ever pay off that debt. You couldn't either. And if God has forgiven you every debt, why is it that when someone owes you something, you drag that around and hang that over their head for decades, hurting your marriage and hurting your relationships and frustrating your friendships and ending the few friendships you have. Listen, if you only have two friends left, I try to hang on to those people. Because at this point, seeing your attitude, they're irreplaceable. You better not lose those two. You better have a short memory. Cut yourself off when you catch yourself talking about the past. You're lying anyways. You're always talking about you actually know what happened. You don't know what happened. At this point, you just fill in the blanks and make it up. Bringing up things that happened 18 years ago? You need to perfect forgetfulness. Paul did. Now, let me ask you this. He's a blasphemer. He's a murderer. He dragged people out of their homes. He's killed. He's responsible for the death of people. He was there for the stoning of Stephen. How do you sleep at night, Paul? You're a murderer. He had to have a short memory. You know how you're going to make it? You better perfect a short memory and learn to forget those things that are behind. You have today. You have tomorrow. Yesterday is gone. Can't fix it. Can't change it. Fix today. Let me say number five and I'm done. Philippians 4 verse 8. You better learn to live cleanly. So let's rehearse here for a minute. Think thankfully. Walk humbly, speak positively, forget continually, and we came to the end of the road. Live cleanly. Look what it says in Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. You know you cannot be happy living in sin. As a Christian, you can't because you have a Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a moment of happiness, temporal happiness, temporal pleasure that's included, but you can't live daily joyful while living in sin. As a Christian, it can't happen. You better teach your young person this because then you'll struggle the rest of your life. You'll get into sin, try to live in sin, and the more sin you, you you're not satisfied in that sense, so you got to keep adding more sin to try adding more joy. You get to the point where you realize that beer is not lasting happiness and drugs doesn't produce lasting happiness. Fornication isn't permanent happiness. That sin begins to weigh on your conscience and torment you. And as a Christian, happiness comes through immediate confession. So you sin, confess immediately. That's a way to be joyful. You have a Holy Spirit. You have a conscience. You have a Bible. You have uh, everything you need to do right. So don't look at that as a bad thing. Look at that as a good thing. So when you come under the guilt of sin, don't be frustrated. Be thankful and confess so you can restore, as David said, the joy of my salvation. 
you can't be around people that are living a life of sin. You, you cannot daily continue those things, be joyful as a Christian. And many have tried. There's no exception. And here's what Paul said. You think on those things that are pure and lovely and true, just. You think on those things and you can be happy. Now let me ask you tonight, is a Christian. Does your family, do your kids see a mom that's happy, a dad that's joyful? Do your fellow workers and Christian friends and I'm not talking about a Sunday service. I'm, I'm talking about throughout the week. Good times and bad times. I'm talking about in the middle of the crisis. That, that joyfulness does not mean you're walking around like a dingling. Woo! Okay. You're, you're weird. You need to pull out the batteries on that thing. I'm talking about you just pleasant, why are you so miserable? Why are you so hurt? Why are you so frustrated? Why do you need someone every day to pick you up, pat you down, sit you up and say, bless your heart. It'll all be better in the sweet by and by. You know what you need? You need Jesus. Because the Bible says in his presence is fullness of joy. You need your joy tank filled and there's no person and no pastor and no mate and no circumstance that can fill that tank. That's God's job. You want your pastor to take God's place. You want your mate to take God's place. You want this church or ministry, your children, your job, your finances to take the place of God and provide you joy. Well, guess what? You're not going to be very joyful. Because there's no mate that can do that. There's no job. There's no circumstance. There's no state. There's no house. There's no pastor. You're going to have to make a determination. I will not be so small that everything in life controls my joy. We certainly hope that you've enjoyed this message today, but more importantly, we hope that the Lord has challenged you in some way to grow in your Christian life. For more information about our church, including directions and times of services, please visit our website at www.capitalcitybaptist.org.